verses 26 through 31. There we read these words. And as they led him away, they laid hold upon one Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country, and on him they laid the cross, that he might bear it after Jesus. And there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in the which they shall say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bear, and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? And the focus of our attention and the title of this message is Jesus' words there in verse 28. Weep not for me, but for yourselves and for your children. And we had some discussion about some recent funerals and deaths and things like that. But the words here of Jesus, we see many times at a funeral or at a memorial service for someone who has died in the little, I don't know what you call them, the little obituary pamphlets that they hand out many times. And uh, having been involved in more funerals than I care to admit, I've seen quite a few of them that have little poems in there many times that will contain at least one or more lines about this, as if the deceased is speaking, and they're saying, don't weep for me now, you know, everything is all right, my suffering's over, or I'm at peace, and this, that, and other. Very comforting little poems like that. And if you know the person and know those words are really true and applicable, that's wonderful. But sometimes we may not know and wonder if that's just a soothing little phrase to comfort people now and that may not all be well with them. But what a blessing it is to know, isn't it? That if a person has professed Christ has dedicated their life to Christ, has bore fruit unto Christ. And we can read that, and it says something to that effect, don't weep for me now. As Christians, it is a bittersweet experience for us because it is okay to weep for our loss and in our grief. And weeping is one of the ways we can deal with that. And yet at the same time, hand in hand with the bitter is the sweet in knowing that everything is all right with them. It's as all right with them as it can be because they have left the suffering and misery of this life and they have entered into rest, not because we want to think it or a poem says it, but because the Bible and God has promised it for His people. So what a blessing when we as God's people can grieve over our loss in the flesh, but rejoice in spirit, knowing that that saint or child of God to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul made mention, you might remember this scripture in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 when he wrote to him about some confusion in the Thessalonica church. 
about those who had died or were asleep in Christ, he said. And that statement is, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not as others which have no hope. So again, to the believer, we sorrow, but we sorrow with hope. Whereas the unbelieving sorrow and usually excessively because of a lack of hope. And at one time we were without hope. But to have that hope puts us in a whole different category. Yes, we sorrow. And it's okay to sorrow. I've heard some people talk about sorrowing and grieving over people that die and thinking that maybe you could be spiritual enough that you shouldn't even sorrow. You know, we know they're in a better place, so what are we crying over? Well, it's human to cry. It's human to hurt. It's human to sorrow. And I never did it, but I thought about when I hear people hint like that, that maybe they need to go back and read how long that Joseph was mourned over and how long Abraham mourned over his loss of Sarah. And uh, I wouldn't put myself in the category with Abraham, would you? But he mourned a long time. So there's nothing wrong with mourning. That's that's our vent and our release and the mechanism which God has given us emotionally to deal with our loss and our death. But as believers, we can rejoice and do it because we have hope. Because we don't see the grave as the end, but the beginning. We see according to the truth of God's Word that our hope doesn't look at the present, but our hope looks to the future. And if you don't have that hope, then you don't have a future. And that's what distinguishes between the people of God and the unbelieving. Now, the devil loves opportunities to deceive and misdirect people in any way and in any occasion. And in death is a great way to do that. And Jesus says here, as he was going to the cross to die, don't weep for me. But weep for yourselves and for your children. Now, he said this in relation to the statement I just made about Satan. Because Satan loves for the world to lament over the cruel and harsh treatment of Christ and his unjust death. But the last thing Satan wants you to lament over is your personal condition and sin and impending judgment. So this is what we call a misdirection or what I'm going to call it. Whereas people get so caught up in the suffering of Christ that some will even go to degrees of wanting to suffer as Christ suffered. And if you're not familiar with that, be aware of it because Easter will be coming up soon. And usually every year at Easter you can find out people in some countries who will be scourged or inflict personal pain and injury upon themselves or have someone do it similar to what Christ suffered in his passion. Now that's misdirection by Satan. 
Christ did not, when he died, need anybody to suffer with him. And he has not needed anybody to suffer with him since that time, as far as what he came to do at Calvary's cross. And the Bible does not direct us or teach us to suffer with Christ in that manner. Christ and Christ alone could only suffer in that manner. And we are not to depict that. And it grieves my heart sometimes when I don't spend a lot of time looking for that stuff, but sometimes it just comes to you. But I've actually read about people in some countries, I believe it was South America or other uh, countries, where people actually had themselves nailed, you know, to a cross. I've never seen that, wouldn't want to, but, but that's misdirection. That, that's Satan deceiving people that in some way that's being holy, that's being spiritual, and that if you do such things, some way it's going to do something for you. It's not going to do anything but hurt you in the flesh. And so Christ, I think, is addressing that very thing here when he tells people, there's something greater to weep about than you weeping for me and my suffering and my death. To pierce your own self and to do harm to your own body because of what Christ suffered is misdirection. You know, I'm using that term. I think that's a term they use in football, isn't it, for a play? When they, they run a misdirection play, it appears you're going one way, but they go the other way. Well, the world has always went the wrong way and always will go in the wrong way on spiritual things and the crucifixion of Christ is just such a thing. People get caught up with their emotions rather in the real essence of what the cross is all about. This is why movies about Christ and the crucifixion become so popular with the world. And yet the people who esteem them to be such in high regard, a lot of them don't even enter a church door. But they can go watch it and be moved with emotion and caught up in it. They can grieve over someone else suffering, and especially Christ who is portrayed even by the unbelieving world to some degree as an innocent victim. It doesn't take much to stir our emotions along those directions unless we're just a really hardened individual, does it? But the real focus is, why did he suffer? Why did he die? What was the point? Why did he allow it? He said he could have called 12 legions of angels. Why didn't he? Well, he didn't need them, but why didn't he just say, okay, I don't have to do this and just avoid it altogether? What put him there? What caused him to be there? What made him want to go there? And what made him say, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves? Well, it's that thing called sin. And this is what he's addressing here. Let's address this first of all from the suffering of Christ, okay? Okay. And in these opening comments, I don't want anybody to think that I am in any way, shape, or form minimizing the suffering of Christ. I am not. I've read it many times. I still don't comprehend it, and neither do you. I've read about the cruel method of putting people to death in crucifixion. And it sounds horrendous, and I can't comprehend all they say that it entails. The 
they did it not only because it was determined and decreed by God that this is the way Christ would die, even from Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness, suspended between heaven and hell, that picture of Christ right there. But humanly they chose it because at that time it was the most agonizing way they knew to torture, hurt, and harm maliciously people to death, to put them to death. And I have read about it. I've heard about it. I've heard it preached. I've read doctors talk about it. And every part of this whole ordeal seems like it is the most excruciating and agonizing way to die that you could die. Now keep in mind, Jesus was in such poor condition already, He couldn't carry His own cross before He even got to the cross. But the way they talk about it, and I'm not going into any more detail except to say again, you, you know what it was like to get poked or pierced. Imagine hanging by pierced hands, having your feet pierced, and when you hang up like that, it does something to your diaphragm and your lungs, and you can't breathe. It causes fluid to assemble around your heart and your lungs. And the longer you hang there and the longer it goes, you have to, from what I've read medically and everything else, you have to push up with your feet to relieve some pressure on your diaphragm and gasp a breath and then go back down. And that can go on and on as we know for ours. So I am not minimizing the suffering of Christ even in the flesh. But I want to say this to you. Many have died by crucifixion. Two died with Christ that very day. And history says hundreds of thousands have been crucified. So in that respect, what was different about Christ's crucifixion? What was different with Him that was different or distinct from everybody else? Because a lot of people were crucified. Well, we've already mentioned one thing. Probably many people deserve crucifixion or deserve death penalty. But many innocent people have been crucified simply out of persecution. Many Christians were. And certainly nobody was more undeserving of dying in any way than Christ because He was a sinless, impeccable Son of God. He did no wrong. He went about doing good. And yet Christ suffered on that cross more than anybody who has ever been crucified. How? Why? Not just the normal things experienced in crucifixion, but something else was added on that that made it worse than what anybody else had endured. If you're a believer today, you know the answer to that, don't you? Christ had the weight of the sins of His people upon Him. It would be one thing for a 160, 180 pound man to hang there and have to push up to get a breath. But it's unimaginable the weight of having the sins of the elect laid upon you with that weight. Nobody comprehends that. Christ was fulfilling on the cross what was prophesied in Isaiah 53 
in every line and in every detail prophecy was being fulfilled let's go there let's just touch upon a few things very quickly just by way of a reminder in Isaiah chapter 53 Calvary is described what Christ would suffer the gospel is declared here it says I want to pick up in verse 4 he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows yet we did esteem him stricken smitten of God and afflicted now we pause right there and say there's the difference there's the difference in people who were crucified for legitimate causes. They deserved it. They had it coming. But they were still stricken and smitten at the hands of men. It was a civil thing, a judicial thing, or just out of cruelty. Jesus Christ is the only one that was crucified in this manner to be stricken and afflicted of God the Father. So his suffering was very real and it was more than any person has ever suffered because he and he alone has had the sins of his people laid upon him. Thou shalt call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. Matthew 1.21 The only way he could do that would have was to have their sins and the punishment of their sins laid upon him and that's exactly what God the Father did to God the Son at Calvary's cross. Other verses here, verse 5, wounded for our transgressions, our substitute, our sin, our transgressions, wounded him, bruised him for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we were healed. Verse 10, It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when he made his soul an offering for sin. Nobody that was ever crucified or ever will be, their soul was not an offering for sin except the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is what made his suffering more unique, more distinct, and the worst that anybody had ever suffered. I've said to you before, I don't believe there was a more lonely person that ever lived than the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe he was the loneliest person when he was alive. And while he was ministering, even though he had his disciples around him, there was a loneliness that pervaded that which could be only known to him who had no sin. I don't believe anybody's ever been humiliated like he was. I don't believe anybody could have ever been as tempted to be discouraged as he was. And yet in all that he sinned not. And yet when he went to the cross as the eternal Son of God, for the first time ever, and for the only time in a few brief hours he was abandoned by his heavenly father only he knows what that's like you and I are never going to be abandoned we were without God and without Christ and dead in trespasses and sins one time but since you have been saved you have the indwelling of the spirit and the presence of Christ with you always you'll never know and neither will I what it's like 
If God was to withdraw or take Himself away, all to us, sometimes it seems like He does. But if He does, it's only, He doesn't really. It just seems that way. And it may seem that way as a form of chastening or something like that. But He promised He'll always be with us. But the Son of God cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Not because He didn't know the answer but because he was suffering the agony of it. So his suffering was very real, and it was unique, and he suffered more than anybody, and it was the worst that could be suffered because he had the sins of his people upon him and was punished by God the Father, abandoned by God the Father. So it was the worst ever. There was suffering before that. i got to at least mention this. In the Garden of Gethsemane, remember that? When he prayed, if it be thy will, Father, let this cup pass from me. Oh, and you study that, and I've preached on it, and none of us still know or comprehend looking into that dreadful cup of God's wrath. Those dreadful, dreadful drugs that every liquid drop must be drunk, and then the dregs themselves must be consumed. That's what he was looking into in Gethsemane when he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. And was in that agony to the point that the Bible literally says back in Luke 22, if you turn back a page, let's just turn back and look at that. Luke 22 and verse 42. He said, Father, if thou willing, be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly in his sweat, whereas it great drops of blood falling down on the ground. And when he arose from prayer... And was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. You ever notice that? They were sleeping for sorrow. Now they were sleeping for some other reasons too, but there was also contributing to that cause sorrow. That's what the Bible says, what Luke says. Where would that sorrow come from? Well, they'd been told of what would happen. They didn't believe it, didn't comprehend it, but hearing it about Jesus being delivered... And dying made them sorrowful. Sometimes people with overwhelming grief, funerals and so forth, what's the remedy? Let them go to sleep. Let them try to sleep it off. Doctors will even give them stuff to put them to sleep because the agony of being alive and dealing with it escaped from reality a little bit there. Anyway, interesting statement there. But Jesus, when he was crucified, was viewed mostly by an unbelieving, ungodly world. And they saw just another person being crucified, yet a unique person. Some called him a prophet. Some didn't know what to call him. But they couldn't escape that he was a man that went about doing good and had power to do miracles and raise the dead that nobody else had ever done. And they tried to blame him, they tried to accuse him, but at the mock trial, the blasphemers and witnesses couldn't even agree on anything. So whether they liked it or not or would admit it or not, the Jews themselves would have to admit that it was an unjust act to kill this man. He did not deserve it. 
And in fact, one of the thieves later said that, didn't he, to his buddy. He said, we deserve what we're getting here, but not this individual. Not this man. Truer words were never spoken. But that's all the world really saw then, and that's all most of the world will ever see in the death of Christ. Is an innocent murder, or rather the murder of an innocent victim. The unjust suffering of an individual. But it was so much more than that, wasn't it? So much more from that. And so the unbelieving world and the ungodly world can read about it and weep tears into their Bible. Or they can go to the movie house and watch the production where somebody has tried to capture their own film and watch the grotesque beatings and bloodshed and so forth and weep their eyes out there. But the words of Christ are still pertinent. Don't weep for me. Don't weep for me. No need of that. Weep for yourselves. And weep for what's coming. That's what you need to be concerned about. So Christ is redirecting what the devil misdirects. Don't focus on my suffering. And in a sense he's saying, I'll paraphrase, and this is the thrust of this message, focus on why I'm suffering. That's the key thing. That's the difference between believers and unbelievers. Unbelievers focus on his suffering because that's as far as they can see. But we who believe focus upon why he suffered for sin. And if you're saved by grace, you see that. You know that. We know that the very thing that put him there was my sins. It gets very personal. Let me, let me run back to Isaiah again. Isaiah is just so clear. It's clearer than anything I can say or comment on. In that 53rd uh, verse 11 and 12, He shall see, he, God shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Again, why did he suffer? Why did he die? If you're saved today, your iniquities, your sin. Matthew again, 121, he shall save his people from their sins by taking their sins, bearing the penalty of their sins in their stead. Verse 12, therefore will I divide a portion, him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. Again, he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And I, I want to emphasize too, there's so much in Isaiah, you just can't stop once you get there. But notice, he poured out his soul unto death. You got that? He poured it out. Think about anything you pour. If, you, if you're going to pour it, it's got to be in your hand. That's the key thing there, right? If it's in somebody else's hand, you have no control over the pouring. If it's in your hand, you have control. It says, he poured out his soul unto death. Preacher, what's the meaning of that? I'll tell you exactly. Glad you asked. He said, I have power to lay down my life, and I have power to take 
up my life. What? It's in my hand. The good shepherd will lay down his life for his sheep. What did he say? Nobody takes it from me. Nobody takes it from me. They murdered him, but he laid down his life. Or they couldn't have. Oh, that's precious, believer, isn't it? And while we see his suffering, we do not rejoice in it. But yet we do rejoice in it. Because if he had not suffered and if he had not died, we would not and could not be saved. But we do not pass off his suffering. It was real. And we are humbled by it that it was necessary. But we don't stop there like most people do, do we? We don't just see the suffering and say, Oh, poor Jesus, poor Jesus, and shed tears. No, again, we see so much more. Uh, and this is what those Emmaus Road disciples needed in uh, uh, chapter 24, the next chapter over. Remember, Cleophas and the other one, when Jesus ministered to them and they were so down in the dumps because they had lost all hope. And in verse 25 and 26, Jesus said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? I mean, this is what was necessary. Why are you so down in the dumps that he suffered? Why are you shedding tears now that he died? Why are you shedding tears that he's gone when it was foretold he must do this and then enter into glory and that would be your salvation? Misdirection again. And Christ redirects. And you know, let me pause there and say, that's what the truth always does. Satan is misdirecting. Even, and, and Satan loves to misdirect people's devotion and their religion and their piousness. This is why those people would nail themselves to a cross or, or do anything to imitate the suffering of Christ. It's misdirected devotion. Satan loves it because it takes the focus off the real thing, which is them, their sin, and what put Christ on that cross. And Christ redirects. So he says, don't weep for me, daughters of Jerusalem. Don't shed tears for me. Focus on something more personal. And we know why he said that. Because we know that by his death and by his own words and his own prophecies, he would lay down his life. He would yield himself to those wicked individuals from Pilate, the Jews, the Roman soldiers, and everybody else that was his enemy. He would yield himself to them. Let them do what they would to him in the flesh. But it was he who yielded up his spirit eventually. He had power over it right to the very end. He wasn't there long. I believe if he had willed it, he could have been there longer. I believe he retained the power of the Spirit to the very end. Yes, they murdered him. But they couldn't have murdered him, I say it again, unless he had been willing to yield to them. And then he said, what? Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he bowed his head and did what? Gave up the ghost. I believe that was a willful act. I don't believe that was happen chance. <laughs> I don't believe that was coincidence. But before that, he stated the victory that we rejoice in when he said three words, it is finished. He bore that punishment to the fullest. When he said it is finished, 
That's like emptying the last drop and the last drag out of the cup. That's what he meant. He had consumed all of the wrath of God for the sins of his people. And when he said it is finished, it's just like emptying a cup and setting her down and there's no more in it. It's finished. It's over. It's empty. Christ emptied himself for us. But his words were, weep not for me, but for yourself. What did he mean by that? Weep not for me, but for yourselves and your children. Again, it is a redirected statement of focus to you personally. There were women, many people, we don't know who all, we know there were believing women stood by the cross. It would be natural for there just to be people lamenting, believers as well as unbelievers. He addresses them as daughters of Jerusalem. And he addresses, don't weep for me and my judgment, but weep for yourselves and the judgment that's going to be rendered to you. And of course, directly he was talking to the Jewish population there because he had warned them about what was going to happen to their city and to them as a people simply because of the rejection of himself. Turn back in Luke 19. And in about three, four verses, we'll read it there. Luke chapter 19, verse 41. And when he was come near, he beheld the city, that's Jerusalem, and wept over it. Think about that. Now, this is Jesus' triumphal entry into the city. The verses before this are where they're laying their garments down, cutting palm leaves and crying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And Jesus comes in and he's not real triumphant, is he? When he gets close and he can see the city, it says he wept over it. You know, this is really the focus of our text. We are to weep over the things that Jesus wept over. Jesus wept another time. You remember that? It's the shortest verse in all the Bible. Two words. John eleven thirty five. At Lazarus' grave, it says Jesus wept. He wept. Lazarus was his friend. Mary and Martha was his friend. There were also those whom he was going to redeem. And he got there in all that suffering and all that sorrow and all that grief. And Jesus shows his humanity that he himself was affected with our sorrows and griefs. Jesus wept. And here Jesus wept over the city. Why would he weep over the city? Because of the state of the city and the people who, couldn't, who were made up the city. Saying, look what he says. Verse 42, if thou hadst known even thou at least in this thy day the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee, and thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee about, and keep, and keep thee in every side, and shall lay thee even with them the ground, thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another. Why? 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 Because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. What does that mean? John chapter 1, the first few verses, He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. Because of their willful rejection and denial of their Messiah, destruction has come upon them, and He told them that very thing. After Jesus' crucifixion, approximately 40 years, Titus, the Roman emperor, besieged Jerusalem, laid siege on it, ultimately conquered it, and destroyed it. And that was the end of the Jews as we know it. 
from the that standpoint. They have been scattered and as a nation suffering ever since. They didn't just suffer in 70 AD. That's when the suffering started. And it continues to this day. Why do people hate them today? Why are people trying to annihilate them? Why is there anti-Semitism? It's right here. I just read it to you. And so Jesus says, weep for yourselves and your children because judgment is coming and it's coming because of sin and it's your sin. It's your sin. Jerusalem was destroyed because the inhabitants, the people who Christ administered to, declared to, showed many mighty works and preached to, denied Him and said, we will not have this man to rule over us. Let His blood be on us and our children. And it's been on them and their children for 2,000 years now. Jesus said that the judgment that would come would cause a reversal of the normal. As you know in the Old Testament, New Testament too, women desired to have children. They counted it a dishonor, a disgrace, and a shame if they couldn't, right? Sarah was barren, Abraham's wife. Uh, you know, um, Hannah, and you know, and those things, and others, different ones, Jacob's wife, Rachel, you know, and, and you see the shame and embarrassment they felt in not being able to produce children. Yet Jesus turns that around here and says, the days are coming when this judgment comes, when women will feel differently and people will feel differently, and they'll, they'll be glad they did not have children, that their womb did not bear any, and their breast did not feed a child. Why was that? Well, it's very simple. There's one thing worse than the grief and sorrow of not having a child, than to have a child and watch that child suffer and die before your very eyes. And in the siege of Jerusalem, it was as bad as any siege could be as Jesus said it would be. You know what happens in a siege? Eventually you run out of either food or water. You may run out of bullets first, I don't know. But without food and water, eventually you're going to yield to the enemy. And the horror stories that we read about in human history of sieges are just beyond our comprehension. You read about it in the Old Testament. People will eat animal dung, their own dung. They'll eat anything. They'll eat anything. And the sad testimony is that women would even eat their own offspring. It's unimaginable. And there's, it's foolish for us to say, well, I'd never do something. Have you ever been in a siege? Have you ever been to that? None of us have. We don't know. But this is what Jesus is warning about. It'd be better off to be a woman without a child than be a woman with a child and be tempted to kill and eat that child. And you remember in the Old Testament there were two harlots. Remember that story about the, the child? Remember? I mean, what I'm saying to you is not foreign to humanity. People in desperate situations. Unimaginable. But that is, that's the extent. And why would somebody do that? Why would a mother eat her own child, or a father eat her own child. Well, if they did and if they could, would that not be one of the most selfish acts there ever was, that my life is more important than this child's life? That I'm willing to sacrifice the child for me and not me for the child? Of course it is. It's sin to do such a thing. But that shows the degree that sin will go to. 
And he also says here, and they'll even say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us, wishing for the grave rather than continue on in suffering. From what I've read and what I've read, I just don't comprehend what all has happened in the siege of Jerusalem as well as other people at other times beyond comprehension. The Nazi death camps and anything else you want. But people have had to suffer those things. And Jesus was saying, don't weep for me. Weep for what you will one day face. And it's because of sin. Well, this message is still just as pertinent today. I'll make an application and I'm done here. Just as pertinent. How are they pertinent today, preacher? Weep not for me, but for yourselves and your children. Jesus died. Indeed, Jesus suffered indeed, but that wasn't the end of it. He said before he did what he was going to do. He said, I will lay down my life, but I'm going to take it up again. And to those Damascus Road disciples, he said, Ought not to have Christ to have suffered and then entered into his glory? And while death looked like a defeat and does today to the unbelieving It's the greatest victory there has ever been. (laughs) The ironies of the cross are so overwhelming, isn't it? I mean, people went by wagging their heads and looking and mocking and ridiculing and there was taking place the greatest event that has ever happened and ever will happen where the sinless Son of God, the eternal Son of God, laid down His life and bore the sins of His people and was victorious in their redemption and proved it by three days later coming out of the grave. Victory. The world looked at the cross and Jesus' crucifixion and does today and sees a defeat. Not to believers. Believers, we look at it and see the greatest victory there ever has been and rejoice. We weep over what put Christ there. Not over Christ's suffering. I read it to you before. And I'd say to you today, what grieves you, what burdens you, what causes you the greatest sorrow? Be very careful how you answer. Very careful. Because most answers, if truthful, are the wrong answers and very elementary. The bottom line is most people suffer the most but when they suffer. It's very selfish, very sinful. We're all there. We're born that way. My greatest suffering is because of what's happening to me or this or that or the other. And then some people rise above that a little bit to where that they suffer and sympathize with the suffering of others greater than their own. And we put a feather in their hat and say, man, they're a good person. And indeed that is good. But if it's all just superficial, what good is it? Some people suffer because of events or tragedies and things that happen to them in their lives. Everybody has tragedies. Everybody has events, circumstances that bring sorrow. We all do. We're all victims of that. But yet some people will sit and say, some people will sit and say, this event happened this day and that's that's the worst day of my life because of that thing or this thing or that thing. Those are all wrong answers. Truthful? Yes. 
but not the right answer as far as concerning your soul. Jesus said, weep for yourselves and for your children. And why would He say that outside of sin? It's sin He was pointing to. It's sin He wanted sinners to focus on. On your sin. If you're saved by God's grace today, I can tell you exactly how you can know whether or not you're saved where you're sitting. Because if you are saved, since God saved you, your greatest grief, your greatest burden, your greatest sorrow, and the thing you hate most is your sin. That's the unequivocal truth of the Bible. Nothing grieves you more than sin. Nothing breaks your heart. Nothing makes you weary. Nothing bears the weight upon you like sin does. And when I say that, I'm talking about our sins first, not the sins of others. Yes, that weight does too. When we see other sins, it's added weight. But it's our sin that we abhor, that we detest. And even though we know Christ died for the penalty of our sin, we're not free from sin and we can't wait to be purged from that. Oh, happy day it'll be when we ultimately and finally, even in our last breath, or when He comes with a shout, we will be free, finally, from sin. That's what your greatest grief should be. That's what Jesus meant here. Focus on your sin. Focus on the penalty of sin. Focus on the judgment of sin that's coming because of your sin. And we rejoice in every bit of that, do we not? Today, I don't have to shed tears over Christ's suffering. I can shed tears over joy of what He accomplished. It doesn't make me feel good to think about anybody being crucified. So again, I say to you, I am not minimizing what he suffered. But I'd be a fool to stand here and try to tell you that I understood what he suffered with the burden of sin on him. I do not, neither do you, and the angels in heaven don't. Only God the Father and God the Son knows what he suffered. Only God knows the weight of the sins of the elect. We do not. But we know this, he bore it. And we rejoice in His words. All of His words on the cross. Father, forgive them. This day thou shalt be with me in paradise. Most of all, it is finished. I go to my Father. He's alive and well. He's alive and well. One day He's coming back. He said it in John 14, did He? I go to my Father, but I will come again. And I will come for you, that where I am, there you may be. That's what we're looking forward to. His words, His promise, our joy. So we look at the cross of Christ and we look at what He suffered and we don't weep because He suffered. We weep because of sin, our sins that put Him there. 
And at the same time, we rejoice that He conquered it. He overcame it. He gave us hope. He purged our sin. And one day when He comes back, He's ultimately, finally going to deliver us by redeeming this body from sin. If you've never grieved over sin, may God give you the grace to do so today.